This is Red State Blue Mom and your podcast host, Mama B, inviting you to explore local and national topics of interest with just a little bit of Southern Appalachia flair thrown in for good measure. Thank you for joining me today on my third podcast episode. As I record, it's Election Day Eve and right after the end of Daylight Savings Time and changing all my clocks over the weekend. I can't help but think of how I remember which way to set my clocks to the right time, depending on the season. Maybe you use this memory jog too. Spring ahead, fall back. Except if you live in Arizona or Hawaii, where you never have to change your clocks at all since those states do not observe daylight savings time. What do those two states have in common? Plenty of daylight sunshine and palm trees swaying in the breeze. Ah, it's during wintertime that I miss my former state, Arizona, the most. The other 48 states, of which Tennessee is one of them, set our clocks back this weekend, supposedly to enjoy more daylight during waking hours because, after all, winter is coming. But maybe this year... Setting our clocks back will also be a metaphor for changes that are beyond our control and on their way, and that includes changes for you too, Arizona and Hawaii. A fallback, a setback for our country, more than we've witnessed over the past four years. At this moment in time, I don't know any election results, or who's president, or if there's been any election problems at the in-person polls, or with voting machines, or with voter intimidation at polling sites or how long people waited in line to vote on November 3rd. I don't know the overall number of votes cast, including mail-in ballots, or how many mail-in ballots were rejected and won't be counted at all, or what percentage of Americans voted for Trump, what percentage voted for Biden, what's the demographic makeup of each candidate's votes, did we have a record turnout of young people, of African Americans, Latinos, Asians, Native Americans, Who did all these groups prefer? What I do know in this moment of time is that our country, and frankly, the whole world, is holding its collective breath, waiting to see how things turn out. Who wins this election? Will our country be falling back, going back in time like it has started to over the last four years, with a myriad of changes? Or will we be springing forward, making our founding fathers promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness a reality for all Americans? Will we be more inclusive of every person regardless of age, race, gender, or non-binary gender, religion, or those who are not part of any religion? Will we be springing forward in the fight for liberty and justice for all and for making our nation a more perfect union? By Election Day, how many Americans will have been infected with COVID? How many will be dead from COVID? One thing I think is almost certain, this election will not be over by midnight on November 3rd. It could be a real poop storm this next week and over the next few months. After Election Day, there will be a number of states still counting mail-in ballots, which is just fine according to their state laws. There will be more lawsuits filed. There will be confusion and stress and probably much anxiety, hand-wringing, and praying. If you voted in the George W. Bush versus El Gore 2000 election, you will remember that we did not know who was president by midnight on election night. We didn't know until mid-December after election night and right before the Electoral College was to meet. And after the election went to the Supreme Court, 
the justices voted for George W. Bush as the winner of the 2000 presidential election, right along party lines. Get ready and hang on to your butts and fasten your seatbelts too, because the Supreme Court may be deciding this presidential election for us like they did in 2000, and it will be for Donald J. Trump. In the 2000 election, Gore won the popular vote, but Bush won the Electoral College, and it was all because of the Supreme Court's decision to end the vote count in Florida and give Florida's electoral votes to Bush. Many Americans, including me, and most of the world as well, I might add, have wondered for years why we still have the Electoral College. Why doesn't the United States declare the presidential election winner by popular vote? Simply put, it's the way our founding fathers set up our Constitution. It was a compromise between those who wanted Congress to decide who was president, a Congress made up of educated, powerful, and only wealthy white men, and the rest of the country's other citizens who wanted the president to be decided by the popular vote. We could get rid of the Electoral College by amending the Constitution, but it would be a long, lengthy, and bitter fight. A very worthwhile fight, but long and bitter nevertheless. Also, it's definitely not in the Republican Party's interest to get rid of the Electoral College. In the total history of our country, we've had five presidents, all Republicans, who have lost the popular vote but won the presidential election anyway because of the Electoral College. Let me name those five Republican presidents who lost the popular vote but won anyway. Number one, John Quincy Adams, the son of founding father John Adams. This was in the 1824 election. He was a member of the Whig Party, which is a forerunner of the Republican Party. Number two, Rutherford B. Hayes in the 1876 election, right after the end of Reconstruction, when Florida's electors, along with two other Southern states, were in dispute and a lot of wheeling and dealing was going on between both political parties. Number three, Benjamin Harrison in the election of 1888, where there was a lot of voting fraud going on, again in both political parties, with presidential candidates paying for their votes. Number four, George W. Bush in 2000, and I might add, that's the first disputed election that I remember. The Florida Supreme Court sided with Gore that all votes in Florida had not yet been counted, mainly absentee ballots, and they needed to be counted when Florida's Republican Secretary of State declared Bush the winner of Florida's electoral votes. Bush appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, who reversed the state of Florida's Supreme Court decision for Gore, and voted 5-4 to four along party lines to halt the recount and give Bush the state's electoral votes. When all was said and done, history tells us Gore won the U.S. popular vote by half a million. Number five. And last but not least, Donald J. Trump was the last Republican president to have won the Electoral College but lose the popular vote. After all, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.8 million. If you voted for Hillary Clinton, your vote may have been one of those 2.8 million overall popular vote people, so that means you could be a 2016 disenfranchised voter due to the Electoral College. I'll bet you never thought of it that way. I have to talk about something else that peeves me and has made me feel blue this election season. If you are not living in a swing state or any kind of close to purple state, 
How often do you see either party's candidate campaigning in your state during the run-up months to the election? The candidates always campaign in those states where the electoral college votes matter the most to get the minimum 270 electoral votes needed to win. They pretty much ignore those states they already have in their electoral college vote pocket. Tennessee, that's you. We are an Air Force One and the opposing candidate's private plane flyover state. As a voter, I feel disenfranchised by this too. And I think that if we went to the popular vote determining every presidential election, like most of the world's democracies, all of us would see each candidate campaigning in our state at least once during an election year. Also, did you know that with the Electoral College determining who is president, States with smaller populations like North Dakota or Wyoming end up having greater representation in the Electoral College as compared to more populous states like Florida, California, and Texas. This is because a state's electoral votes are based on the number of House of Representatives they have and adding in the two senators that every state has for a minimum of three electors in the Electoral College for every state. So even the least populous states, like Wyoming that I mentioned earlier, which has one House representative, who in this case happens to be former Vice President Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney, and then it's two senators like every state has, Wyoming has greater representation of its 570,000 residents with its three electors than the state of California who has 53 House representatives and its two senators, which works out to their electoral college electors representing more than 700,000 citizens each. Now, I've never been the greatest at math, but even my brain can see a discrepancy in the number of Americans represented between each of those states, Wyoming and California. I don't know about you listeners, but I had a long wait to vote early, almost two hours, and that's with me arriving 50 minutes before the polling place opened its doors. It's the longest I've ever waited in line to vote in any state I've ever lived. It's not at all usual to see long voting lines in East Tennessee. When I arrived at the polling site, there were already about 75 people waiting in line, so I set up my chair from my former soccer mom life, appropriately social distanced from the woman in line in front of me while wearing my mask, sat down, and opened my magazine. The polling site I went to in Knoxville was at a strip mall that contained the region's Girl Scout offices and product shop, and my chair was right in front of the entrance. I have a multitude of wonderful stories from my 13 years as a Girl Scout leader to a group of wonderful little girls, now grown women. Out of 14 girls in my troop, nine earned the Girl Scout Gold Award, including my daughter. This award is equivalent to the Boy Scout Eagle Award. All of my former Girl Scouts are good citizens and have become remarkable women in their chosen life paths. And here I want to give a shout out to my daughter Afton, one of the bravest, confident, and most capable women I know. I'm very proud of her and I love her to no ends. She has always worked hard to improve lives in the world, like when she worked at the United Nations in Geneva dealing with refugees. And when Donald Trump became president, she chose to come back to Tennessee and work on improving the lives of her fellow citizens in some way or another. She puts herself on the front lines every day. Just listen to her co-hosted podcast, Grits, and you will see what I mean. 
A number of my Girl Scouts are now moms, so I call their children my Girl Scout grandbabies. Sadly, so far, none of the moms with kindergarten age or older girls have them in Girl Scouts, even though they've told me that they had a great experience as a Girl Scout and have appreciated all I did for them as their leader. Instead, they have their daughters in church-run programs where the emphasis isn't on inclusion and diversity as much as it is on religious doctrine and learning the biblically prescribed female role within their church, their relationships, and the world at large. I understand why they made this choice for their daughters, because it was exactly how I was raised, isolated from any other kind of thoughts and people who were different or thought differently from my faith. It's why growing up I wasn't allowed to be a Girl Scout and why I wanted to make up for it by becoming a Girl Scout leader and making sure my troop had every wonderful experience that I wasn't allowed to have as a child because of my faith at the time. Let's just say that I got it when one of my former Girl Scouts told me she didn't like the organization because it accepted gay people and the Bible is against homosexuality, so therefore her daughter would never be a Girl Scout. It's interesting, but not one of their mothers ever said that to me when their daughters were in my troop. I guess these feelings are much more overt now. I made sure my troop was as exclusive and diverse as it possibly gets in East Tennessee. I definitely had a lot of economic and class diversity within my troop of girls. I had one African-American Girl Scout for a while until her family moved away. I had a Hawaiian whose mother was one of my best volunteers. One Girl Scout had a Japanese grandmother who taught the troop how to weave baskets, and that Girl Scout's mother was another one of my best volunteer moms. And there were many Christian faiths represented within the troop, but as far as I know, there was no gay Girl Scout. In my role as a Girl Scout leader, I didn't talk about religion or politics, but I did emphasize treating people as you would want to be treated. This is the golden rule found in the Bible in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 12. But did you know that the golden rule is found in some form in just about every great religion and culture in the world, including Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam? It is considered an ethic of reciprocity in some faiths. Did you know that the golden rule predates Jesus? I had an epiphany when I was in my senior year of college, finishing my required courses as a Chinese language major. In this particular class of only nine students, each of us was taking a turn at reading the writings of ancient Chinese philosophers written in ancient or classical Chinese characters. While in class one day, and haltingly reading aloud in Chinese a page of Confucius's writings, I read a series of characters from top to bottom and realized I had just read the Golden Rule. And that's the Golden Rule that I was familiar with through my Bible readings. I remember I stopped my reading in shock and looked up at my Chinese professor, speechless. She knew why I had that reaction, and she said in English, Class, if any of you are Christians and think Jesus was the first person to come up with the golden rule, you would be wrong. History tells us it was Confucius who was the first person to write this ethical pronouncement down for the benefit of humanity, and that was more than 500 years before Jesus was even born. Wow, that day in class I had had an epiphany. A thought earthquake had occurred, and more than ever, I appreciated what education can do to expand a person's mind. 
My difficult journey in getting a college education is a subject for another podcast at another time. As a Girl Scout leader, I wanted my Girl Scouts to expand their minds to learn something new and maybe spark an interest in them that would carry over through a lifetime. I wanted them to feel good about themselves, to feel their voice mattered in the world, to be an advocate for themselves whenever necessary as a confident, strong, courageous, and capable woman in whatever they chose to do in their lives when they grew up. It was very different than what I had learned in the faith I was raised in, where women could be seen but weren't heard or listened to very much unless it was in a way that had been determined by the men in church leadership and with their permission. So on the day I went to vote early, I thought about all these things as I was sitting there in my soccer mom chair waiting for the polls to open, and also how far I had come from being raised in a religion that did not allow anyone to vote, salute the flag, sing the national anthem, or serve in the military, because allegiance of any kind only belonged to God and his heavenly kingdom, but not to anyone or any government on earth. Because I lived in a patriarchal, authoritarian, not mainstream in the least, oppressive, brainwashing kind of ecosystem growing up, as an adult, I can spot all those same things a mile away. I'm very sensitive to forms and strains of oppression, suppression, bullying, unfairness, and injustice. And that gets me back to the Republican Party and Donald Trump. We have a president who has said many times, if he doesn't win, the election is rigged. As election day maybe turns into an election week or maybe an election month or two, Americans are increasingly worried about instability, civil unrest, and violence. Last summer, I was having lunch with a 73-year-old girlfriend, a native East Tennessean, former Democrat turned big-time Trump supporter, who expressed to me her worry over a civil war occurring with the November election. It startled me to hear this coming from her because she's one of the kindest, loving, most positive, salt-of-the-earth souls you'll ever meet. She told me that her and her husband were getting their guns ready and laying in a supply of ammunition, food, and water in anticipation of this coming civil war and a prolonged fight. I thought to myself, if my elderly friend is thinking this way, what about others that I know? What about the people I don't know? I do a lot of reading, and I was aware of the concern that many people felt there would be problems with this election. Heck, I even have concerns about problems with this election, including violence and unrest. Even federal and local law enforcement have concerns about the possibility of violence erupting, especially if the vote count drags on for a while without a clear winner. Along with these concerns, there's also the normal Republican focus on voter fraud, and the ongoing Democratic concern with voter suppression. But for the first time in my memory, now a new worry, violence, unrest, and civil war between Americans of different political parties possessing different viewpoints and ideologies. The fear is so potent that it has spawned a whole new big business, survivalist camps, mainly for the wealthy, located in secret locations around the country that they can jet to easily two of which I read about in the states of West Virginia and Colorado. Even though federal and local law enforcement say there is no evidence of a coordinated plan for widespread violence, with the vast majority of Americans of both parties rejecting violence no matter what, the signs are still disturbing, 
there's been a big, sharp increase in gun sales, a spike in online chatter about civil war, especially among far right-wing groups, and an embrace by Trump and other leaders of violent language and the talk of violence against political opponents as acceptable. Most of the threats, despite what Trump says, are coming from far right-wing groups and militias. As I told my friend, it's not the blue Democrats who are showing up at state capitals armed to the hilt with guns, being menacing and intimidating and threatening violence. She conceded I was right and said she really wished Trump supporters wouldn't do that. Even Trump's own acting Homeland Security Secretary, Chad Wolf, wrote in an October report, quote, White supremacist violent extremists have been exceptionally lethal in their abhorrent, targeted attacks and seek to force ideological change in the United States through violence, death, and destruction, end quote. Trump is a favorite of the Boogaloo Boys, a loose collection of extremist groups that feel there's a need for a second civil war and warn that the election could be a potential flashpoint. The Washington-based International Crisis Group never expected to issue an alert about the United States. They are an organization that gives the world early warning signs about countries in danger of violent conflict. Unfortunately, this is where we are because of Trump's rhetoric and his refusal to guarantee a peaceful transfer of power, should he lose. Now I want to tell you a true story that occurred in Appalachian, East Tennessee in 1946 during a local election that goes down in American history as the only successful armed rebellion since the American Revolution. It was a civilian revolt against the local government in McMinn County, whose county seat is Athens, Tennessee. Athens is down Interstate 75 between Knoxville and Chattanooga. It's about 59 miles north of Chattanooga. To this day, in Athens, Tennessee, there's a historical marker near the site of this armed rebellion that says, The Battle of Athens. It was fought with guns, submachine guns, rifles, pistols, Molotov cocktails, and dynamite. It was a fight over widespread voter fraud in a local election perpetrated by a political machine. No one was killed, but there were many injuries, some of them severe. This battle was fought over six hours of shooting with four dynamite blasts, lots of property damage, and 20 hospitalizations. I'm going to try to make the story short, but if you want more details, please Google the Battle of Athens, 1946. This story starts with a stereotype of Southern law and order from the past, before the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of the 1960s. Unfortunately, the stereotype of the all-white male police force, including the sheriff, and political machines encompassing judges and county commissioners who were on the take, and all about power, control, and money, was terribly true in this case. For a decade, from 1936 to 1946, the sheriff, the police, justices of the peace, and local politicians had total control of everything that happened in McMinn County, including elections and the ballot boxes. For instance, before Interstate 75 was even a glimmer in the government's eyes, one of the main roads from Knoxville to Chattanooga and beyond to Atlanta went right through McMinn County and Athens, Tennessee. At the time, the sheriff and his deputies were paid according to how many people they booked, jailed, and released. The more people they did this to, the more money they all made. 
It's estimated that in the decade that controlled the county, they collected fees in the amount of $300,000, or in today's dollars, $5.5 million. And really, that was just the dollar amount they put on the books. Who knows how much they each pocketed off the books? There's no written record. If you happen to be driving through McMinn County in those 10 years they controlled everything, there's a good chance you would have been pulled over by one of them and randomly ticketed for going over the speed limit when you weren't, driving intoxicated even if you were a teetotaler, or any other thing they thought they could get you for, and most of all, get your money. They would even stop buses going through the county and accuse passengers on the bus of something illegal and the threat of jail, for which they would need to be paid. When it came to elections over those 10 years, the sheriff and his men would stand at polling places in their uniforms with their weapons visible and intimidate those who were voting, not just by their presence, but verbally too. They would never let the election boxes out of their sights, and at the end of each election day, the sheriff and his men would take the ballot boxes back to the jail, go through them, and then throw away the majority of votes that were not for them thus always ensuring themselves a victory. After a while, the townspeople were on to them because, like the out-of-town visitors, they were always being harassed, especially if the sheriff and his men thought you hadn't voted for them. Or worse yet, they would make harassing and life-threatening phone calls to citizens' homes, or send threats through the mail, or drive by a home and shoot out a window, or do something nasty to your car. You could also be fined and thrown into jail on trumped-up charges. Pardon the pun. The saying trumped up came much before our current president was even born. But isn't the saying apropos these days? By the time World War II arrived in 1941, the whole town knew their tactics. There were many men from McMinn County that had gone off to war to fight in far-off, foreign-sounding places against Hitler's Germany and the Japanese army, for the many freedoms they enjoyed back home. All too often, they received letters from their girlfriends, wives, or family members about the awfulness going on in their own country or town, one of which was disenfranchising their loved ones' in-person votes as well as their own military absentee ballot. I might add that during this time, everyone also paid a poll tax to vote whether you were white or black. It wasn't until the 60s that the poll tax was done away with. When the war ended in 1945, all those GIs who had been fighting to keep the world free from fascism, when discharged, came home to McMinn County in Athens, Tennessee, to find it run by a mini-American-made fascist regime. They also find themselves experiencing predatory policing. The police knew that they came home with mustering out pay and decided they would greet every bus full of GIs coming home with invented reasons for them to be arrested and go to jail. In jail, they would then have to use their mustering out pay to free themselves. What the sheriff and his people could not take from the GIs was their patriotism and a deep respect for their country. Their wanting their vote to count and wanting an end to the lawlessness, the predatory policing, the political corruption, and the voter intimidation. On the next local election day in 1946, the script was the same and the GIs would have none of it. At the end of election hours, they took matters into their own hands over a six-hour period, the details of which I will let you Google because it involves a lot of weapons, ammunition, fire, and fury. Let me just say, 
This election day, we do not want to experience what Athens, Tennessee did on their election day in 1946 in order to vote and have every vote count. We do not want a battle. When all was said and done, and even after Eleanor Roosevelt had weighed in on the Battle of Athens, calling it, quote, a warning, unquote, against the attempts to prevent citizens from peacefully exercising their right to vote and respecting the subsequent decision of the voters, the people of McMinn County quickly set aside the past events and moved forward under their new GI leaders. To quote author Chris DeRose, writing about the Battle of Athens election in 1946, if they can reconcile, after a decade of division and a battle of ballots that ended in a battle of bullets, there's hope for us all. Unfortunately, after all the votes are counted and the battles fought in this 2020 election, and we know who the winner is, as a nation, we will still be dealing with Trump and Trumpism for years to come, even if he loses. He and his followers are not going away anytime soon, nor will they go away peacefully and quietly. We could have a scenario where they work very hard to undermine a Biden administration through having a shadow government and or their own TV and radio broadcasting networks besides Fox News and Sinclair Broadcasting. If Trump wins a second term, I think many of us can imagine what that would be like after his first four years as president. The guardrails will be off. Already, so many norms and rules have been broken with no consequences that it's hard not to think that in a short time, the world's oldest democracy may no longer be one at all. As I said earlier, I know what oppression, suppression, bullying, unfairness, and injustice look like because I've already lived it, and I don't want to live it again. But I do love this country, and I can't see leaving it and living somewhere else. Soon, winter is coming, and fall will be behind us, and maybe, to quote Shakespeare's Richard III, now is the winter of our discontent. But if each and every one of us, whether a Republican, Democrat, or an Independent, apply and live by the golden rule, we will end up being okay. Let's reconcile with the other side, our fellow citizens, our neighbors, and friends. And after four years of division and a battle of ballots, let's end this election with hope for a sunnier tomorrow. Let's be patient, keep the peace, and strive to keep moving forward in our resolve to make this country a more perfect union for liberty and justice for all.